Extraordinary Districts, a podcast series from the Education Trust that investigates what ordinary school districts do to get extraordinary results. Today, it can be done. Hi, I'm Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe all students can achieve at high levels no matter what their background, so we're visiting school districts where that's happening. Today is the last of a three-part episode on Lexington, Massachusetts. In our last two segments, we saw that over about eight years, Lexington closed the proficiency gap between its white and Asian students on the one hand and its African-American and Hispanic students on the other, thus propelling it into the academic stratosphere. But as we heard last time, the first years were anything but smooth sailing. Even before Paul Ash learned of big disparities in student achievement, he had declared that teachers should collaborate on research projects and share their results. By his own account and the account of others, Lexington's foray into research was a colossal failure. But he learned something important. And the takeaway in this one is in any big change in a school system, you've got to explain really why. And I think people, teachers need a lot of professional support. You and I both know school districts cut professional development budgets and they assume miraculously human beings are going to change their mindsets and their skills and their knowledge on their own. As Ash's initial attempts at fostering collaboration were failing, he stumbled on the information that African-American and Hispanic students who were bussed in from Boston were not doing well. An Achievement Gap task force produced a long list of programs to be implemented, many of which involved having students spend more time on their academic work. The district began providing tutoring programs, extra help during, before, and after school, all kinds of initiatives. Teachers began to feel overwhelmed. And African-American and Hispanic parents worried that their children were being singled out as the students who were not succeeding. And all the time in the background, Ash knew that resident white parents would resent it if they felt that resources were being taken away from their kids in favor of students who were bussed in. That's where we left off. Here's former Superintendent Paul Ash on what happened next. So only the first year when we had this t- uh, committee across the whole district, we called it the Achievement Gap Task Force. By year two, we called it the Equity and Excellence Committee. I recognized early on that we could not frame the problem as we're only helping struggling students because I didn't want to pit one population against the other. The challenge had to be framed as how do we raise the achievement for all kids? And then eventually, achievement couldn't be around what you're teaching to the test. It had to be what do we consider a high-quality education in Lexington? That includes the arts and athletics and community service in addition to academics. One of the things that changed as a result of this shift was that academic interventions that had initially been designed solely to help METCO students were expanded to help any student who was struggling. Here is Laura Lassa, principal of Lexington High School, to explain how at least part of this worked and continues to work at the high school. Students are identified as lapsing through either their curriculum in grade 9, 10, 11, or 12. They're assigned to the learning center. It's put on their schedule. Again, you don't have an option to not go and get the support. For six weeks, you will be here so we can pick up your skills and you can carry on. The fact that the tutoring is mandatory is key, Lassa says. But by putting it on their schedule and making it time-bound, what we're trying to communicate to students is you're not broken. 
you're not, this is not a disaster. You are at a moment in time where you need additional support to get your skills over the hump, whether they're overt skills or discrete skills. And once you've got those and you've got some confidence going, um, we'll get you out of there. And if you need to come back, you can come back. But the idea that it's time-bound has given kids confidence a boost because they actually feel like they achieved something. When you, when you put kids in there and it's endless, it's like, well, I'm always no good at this. And what I've seen in a lot of our um, students of color is now they're like, oh, I actually just needed some support for whatever this skill is. Along with Karen, the, the additional link of the learning-centered educator talking with the classroom teacher directly. What do you need me to do when working with this student? So it becomes very specific. But Lexington's students weren't the only ones getting extra help. Ash had realized that his teachers needed support as well. While teachers were focused on improving the learning of students, Assistant Superintendent Carol Polarski focused on improving the learning of teachers. And collaboration became the key because we developed professional learning communities in each of our schools. For non-educators out there, professional learning communities are a formal structure of collaboration. They were introduced into the educational lexicon by Richard DeFore in the 1990s, who had led a very successful high school in Illinois. He and his wife then spent years training educators around the country on how to use professional learning communities, known as PLCs, to drive improvement. Lexington brought the DeFores to train teachers and school leaders in how to conduct PLCs. Grade-level teachers, grade-alike level teachers in our elementary schools work together to share their understandings of what everyone needed to know and be able to do and, and collaborated with each other to share. If my strength was the teaching of math and your strength was the teaching of literacy, how do we share what I can do with what I know you can do better? Do we trade students every now and then to be sure that the methodology that you're using, which is very successful with some of the not high, non-high-performing students, how do we learn from each other? And that was, that was a shift in and of itself because education can and could have been a very isolating profession because we have this history in education of thinking that, you know, I close my door and I do in my classroom what I do and I do what I think I know how to do best. And getting over that hurdle to help teachers understand, no, we can do this better if we do it together um, was kind of a year and a half, two year process. Gradually, she saw an effect on students' achievement. That key piece, when I say collaboration and understanding between and among people about how I can help you and you can help me and how in turn we collectively help our students was phenomenal. The kind of um, turnaround we were able to create. And I think that is eventually what brought us to this reduction of the, or of the achievement gap. The district brought in other professional development as well. It brought in researcher Robert Marzano to share what he had identified were best practices for classroom teachers to employ. Others came to introduce what is known as Response to Intervention, or RTI, which is a system of organizing interventions for students who need additional instruction. RTI was just being introduced to the education world then. This is to say, just as Lexington realized the depths of its problems, the larger field of education had developed some specific ways of grappling with those very problems. 
Superintendent Ash paid for the professional development in part by ending the rather expensive diversity training Lexington had been spending money on. Later, when Lexington received a one-time infusion of funds as part of the federal stimulus bill following the 2008 economic downturn, Ash put all that money into professional development as well. Now, the educators in our audience will know that in some places, professional development has been a waste of time. Many teachers, for example, think PLCs are just another thing that keep them from doing their jobs. That's, in fact, what Barbara Hamilton thought when she initially sat through the PLC training. She was then the elementary school social worker who became the director of the METCO busing program in Lexington. I mean, teachers, we work hard. I'm, I'm a former classroom teacher, and um, I thought, yeah, this is a bit much. But then people were able to see the value of it. I asked her what that value was. I, I think it was people begin to develop um, trust when, when I can sit with my colleague and they begin to share an idea like, that is a better way to do that. Oh, I, I never thought of it that way. Have you tried this way? And when that really began to happen versus the training part of what is a professional learning community, that part people are like, oh, one more thing, you know, one more initiative. But when it began to happen, I think that is where people made that shift, that, that transition. The initial focus of the PLCs was around solving the problem of low achievement of METCO students, that is, Lexington students of color. But Hamilton said the focus soon expanded. It can't just be about students of color. That has to be, and that was the starting point. And I think it has to be about all students. Because what benefits students of color will benefit all students. I asked Laura Lassa, principal of Lexington High School, about the reaction of her teachers to the PLCs. Well, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There was a lot of resistance to the professional learning communities in the beginning. There are a lot of buzz words and terms that go through education and recycle over with a new term again and again. And teachers and educators tend to be skeptical of the new thing that comes along. That's human nature. I tend to be skeptical of them sometime. So the way we tried to present it at the high school and work with the faculty was you are always talking about the need to collaborate with your colleagues and, and to move folks away from the idea that a professional learning community is a thing. It's not a thing. It's a way of doing business. And that was the systemic part of it. So when people say to me, my PLC, I mean, oh, the group of teachers that's getting together, it, it was really getting them, putting their own words back to them. You say over and over again, you value these four things. Well, if you value those four things, getting together with educators allows you to do those four things. You can call it whatever you want, Karen. <laughs> but And it, it was slow at first, got to be honest. What are we doing? What are we talking about? What are the norms? I don't want to set norms. You don't trust that we can get together and talk about the right thing. And so it was rocky at first. Lexington's teachers, who were used to closing their classroom doors and working in isolation, began to change the way they worked. A lot of things began across education, people to look at it differently and ask, like, why are we in silos? Why am I going into my classroom and shutting the door and not talking to anybody else, and particularly Karen at the secondary level? Elementary, organically, by a classroom teacher in third grade teaching five subjects is talking to the other third grade teachers about those five subjects. High school, where you get very departmentalized, 
it's hard to find time for everybody to cross-pollinate. And so that's where the professional learning component that Lexington built in provided those opportunities, much like the kids. You don't have an option to cross-pollinate. We're going to create those opportunities for you. But yeah, you do look back and say, why have we been operating this way? I want to bring back in Anna Monaco. We last heard from Monaco remembering how, as a special education teacher, she had been pretty lost in collaborating on action research. But by the time the professional learning communities were being put in place, she was an assistant principal of Clark Middle School. She is speaking now from the vantage point of being principal. The professional learning that the district invested in was huge. I mean, for teams to be able to go through professional learning and get money to do workshops together, to work on their curriculum over the summer, um, that, that was enormous. I asked Monaco about the value of all that professional development that the district paid for in those first years. That money was well invested. Um, since then, I think the district has even made a, a further shift in the last few years, really taking that idea to heart about professional learning that we really learn best from each other, that we all have experts here. Now taking, we have one day a year that's dedicated to the entire district professional learning. Um, and those were the days that had traditionally, we brought in the Marzano, we brought in the Dufours, you know, for that one day training. Um, and now what we do is we do Lexington Learns together. From within, we've got teachers teaching teachers. Um, again, trust, credibility. These are my colleagues. I, I, I trust these people. I know they do good work. I've seen them in their classroom. I want to go learn how to do that. Um, and so people propose workshops, and then people sign up for workshops, and it doesn't cost a thing. <laughs> Today, throughout the district, you can hear about professional development and leadership development as well, because as teachers became more expert about an issue, they sometimes specialized in it. So, for example... Teachers in Lexington have opportunities to become reading specialists, assistant principals, even principals, through credit-bearing courses offered by the district. Here's Mary Anton Oldenburg, principal of Bowman Elementary, talking about why that's so important. I really believe that one of our biggest problems for classroom teachers is that it's kind of a repetitive cycle. You do the work, and you go through this year, and you put your heart into it, and then you get to the end of the year, and you start all over again. And so part of what we try to build in is how, how in that cycle, as you go through that cycle, are you going to pick or think about an area in which you want to specialize that, is, that really has your passion? It doesn't matter where, where it is, but when, when I can support a teacher on that growth journey, then they're going to be more involved. The work that they're going to do and share with their colleagues is going to be richer and deeper. Um, and they're going to feel more professionally fulfilled. So let's try and recap a bit. Lexington was always a high-performing district, but its high average performance masked some very serious achievement gaps. When the district's educators started addressing that issue, they realized that the way teachers had worked in the past had contributed to their gaps. When teachers functioned on their own as individual autonomous professionals, they didn't always have the knowledge or skill to solve all their classroom problems. With a lot of professional development geared to helping teachers work together to study their practices and their data, teachers were able to improve instruction and close gaps. Here's parent LaDawn DeBose. 
I mean, I knew things were happening, you know, you see the stats and things like that, but the fact that, you know, we did it, it's like, whoa, really? Like already? I think we were all just shocked. I asked social studies teacher Bill Cole what lessons other districts might want to take away from Lexington's experience. Two things that every district's going to have to do if they want to change the outcome for a population. One is time. Increase the amount of time, focused, powerful time, high leverage time on learning for the kids. And second, relationships. What are you doing to develop the relationships? And it can be as simple as institutionally making it, see, making it clear that that person and that that group is valued and is an important part of the population. But it can be much more than that. It can be these personal relationships. How are those being developed? Those two things definitely are high leverage points. It's just that every district has to figure out how those would manifest themselves in their district. Here's Lexington High School principal Laura Lassa on what she thinks was important. When things aren't going well, we can't be afraid of looking at the facts of the data that points to what's not going well. And it's not a criticism. It's just um, we're in a human business. Um, so what works today doesn't necessarily work tomorrow or work for individuals. But for me, it was the all-in commitment that we've identified an area we need to improve on. Assistant Superintendent Polarski agreed that the focus and the mission were key. For us, what became our mission is like we need to have every single student who graduates from Lexington High School be able to perform as well as anyone else. I never called it the achievement gap. I always called it the experience gap. Some kids come with just more background than other students and more opportunities than perhaps other students. But that doesn't mean that they are not all able to achieve at the same heights. And um, that kind of became our mission. She's clear that there's no magic formula. It can't be cookie cutter, because if it could be cookie cutter, all of the thousands of school districts across the country would be doing it because every school district wants to be successful. METCO Director Barbara Hamilton pointed to the importance of Superintendent Ash's leadership in incorporating collaboration, professional learning communities, and intervention strategies. You have to have the right leadership and you have to have vision. One thing that I said about Dr. Ash, whether you liked him or not, the man had a vision. I think those people and those systems that were being developed and talked about were being introduced at the right time, you know, into education. And he had the fortitude as part of his vision, let's look at it. Can this help us? And, and he jumped that. Um, I think most districts are now. Most districts have PLCs, but they jumped on it a little later than what Lexington did. Here's former Superintendent Paul Ash, who led the work for 10 years, talking about what was important in his work. It was fun. I mean, we, you know, we, we, you know, I put out a couple of high, very non-negotiable things. But largely, I said to people, because that was sort of top-down, I said, the vision is that all kids cross the finish line. The vision is all kids have a high education. Within this culture of collaboration and professional development, you have to figure out, you have to figure out in your teams better ways of running the school or running the school system. You know, it was a mixture of sort of a few non-negotiables and a lot of latitude to teachers to figure out within that structure how to basically create a better organization. Key to this, he said, is ensuring that teachers are not working in isolation, but as part of a full school community. 
Okay. So think how I've shifted the conversation. Maybe you can't be held accountable for every child in your classroom to achieve at a high level. But I am going to hold the school and the school system accountable. So I get it as a teacher, you may be working every possible hour you can that's reasonable to help the kids in your classroom. But you can't be the guidance counselor. You can't be the reading intervention specialist. You can't be the math intervention specialist. You can't be the special education teacher. But the school can hold, can identify the kids who are struggling. They can create a, a, a meeting every six weeks. Some schools call it a data team, where you talk about the students who are struggling. And in the room are all the educators who interact with that kid and some others. And say, let's talk about how's that student doing against our expected outcomes, our benchmarks, whatever you want to call it. And say, so here's how our student is doing. And then they come up with a plan. They say, okay, you can't fix everything. What are we going to work on in the next six weeks that we think is the most important? And who should do what in this room that's going to help that child? Now, once the teachers are in the room and it's nobody's fault and the principal's there and they come up with a plan, and this is the scientific method, they try it out. But notice that the people have agreed to the plan and they try it out and then they meet again in six weeks or less if necessary. And then they say, how is it doing? And if it's working fine, you just keep working on the plan. Now you do this over a period of years, and now you're going to see real progress. What I saw in Lexington is what I have seen over and over again in what I call unexpected schools. That's the term I use for schools that are high-performing or rapidly improving that serve large percentages of children of color and children from low-income homes. First, I saw teachers, school leaders, and district leaders demonstrate their belief that schools have an obligation to help all their students be successful. Second, I saw them recognize that to help all students, they must marshal the full power of schools. The way Lexington marshaled that power was through deep collaboration, a process that requires time, energy, and trust. Further, they carefully and deliberately built the knowledge and skill of teachers and school leaders through an extensive professional learning program. It was initially expensive because it brought in well-regarded trainers from outside. But after a while, they've been able to rely mostly on the internal expertise that has been developed. Finally, Lexington's careful use of data has allowed educators to see patterns and assess whether what they are doing is working and should be continued or is not working and needs to be jettisoned. I want to bring one last voice back in that of Ron Ferguson, the Harvard professor who was so skeptical that Lexington really had closed the proficiency gap, but was finally convinced by the data. And the story is one where they were very intentional and they created a learning community. They didn't go in the door the first day saying, okay, we got a recipe we're gonna implement here. They had a sense of the direction they wanted to move in and they searched for ways to take small steps in that direction and they did that year after year for about seven years, and um, gradually they made progress. His big conclusion? I guess the bottom line is it can be done. That's kind of the point of this podcast. It can be done. If we've piqued your interest and you want to know more, go to our website, www.edtrust.org slash districts. There you'll find lots of links to more information, including to Ron Ferguson's report on Lexington and his other work, and to a book Paul Ash wrote based on his experience, School Systems That Learn.
One of the things that Paul Ash said in our conversations was that he wanted to find out if any district had closed achievement gaps at the elementary school level. The answer is yes. And in our next episode, we'll be going to an impoverished city deep in the Rust Belt, where the elementary schools have led in achievement for years. Be sure to join us as we find out how they have achieved success. I'm Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust, and this is our podcast series, Extraordinary Districts. See you next time.